class and after choir tomorrow night, so hopefully I am working on some preliminary stuff for our summer and fall deceptive trips. And I have not even talked to some of you about what we're going to be necessarily, but I want to meet with I think it works out in schedule I can meet with the fall group tonight and the summer group tomorrow night. Tonight, looking at Numbers 15 and uh, talking about classes, healing in his wings. And I want to start with a question tonight. And I want you to think about it, not just in a generic sense, um, but maybe a little bit more deeply. So, what purpose does your life serve? And you would say, well, John Piper really, really um, uh, made this phrase popular that we exist to, well, we exist to glorify God. Well, okay, fair enough. That's it's not a wrong answer. But it's a pretty general answer, right? That's like saying, oh, what's the code for, what's the dress code for church on Sunday morning? Well, you should come dressed. Well, okay, yeah, but that doesn't really answer my question. So it's sort of the same thing. Well, well, we exist to glorify God. Okay, what does God, okay, so what is your purpose? That's the first question. And what does God want from you today? Maybe not, even, not, not in a general sense, but specifically. I don't want you to answer the question, but that's the question we're going to look at tonight. Why are you here? What purpose does your life serve? What does God want from you? What are you supposed to do with the time that you have? So our story today begins in Numbers 15. Israel is in the wilderness. This is post Mount Sinai. This is uh, chronologically, in the chapters at least, this is directly before the chapter where we have we read about the um, the rebellion of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and that whole thing. So this is somewhere in the 40-year wandering. So God has given the law. Israel's been working on living it out and organizing themselves in the nation and all of these things. And we come to the story in Numbers 15. I'm going to read a number of verses for you here. <clears throat> and while the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man that gathered sticks upon the Sabbath day. And they that found him gathering sticks brought him unto Moses and Aaron and unto all the congregation. And they put him in ward because it was not declared what should be done unto him. And the Lord said unto Moses, The man shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones without the camp. And all the congregation brought him without the camp, and stoned him with stones, and he died as the Lord commanded Moses. So, stoning. If I'm not mistaken, and I could be wrong about this, but if I'm not mistaken, this is the only incident in Scripture in, 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 uh, prior to Achan where someone was stoned. So in all of the Exodus history and in all of Genesis, as far as I know, and I could be wrong, you have the guy picking up sticks, and then the next account happens years later in the land of Canaan when Achan is, uh, is stoned. Now, you remember the story of Achan, I assume, from the first part of Joshua. Was his, sin, was his sin serious? Say yes. Well, why? Well, he disobeyed God. Okay, fair enough. You disobey God, too. 
But uh, he disobeyed God kind of epically, didn't he? Because his disobedience and, and him taking those things out of Jericho resulted in the deaths of a number of other Israelites. And so they figure out what's going on, and Joshua, you know, the lot falls on Achan, and Joshua uh, calls him out and says, I think he even calls him my son. He said, my son, tell me what's going on. And Achan says, you know, I've done all these things. And Joshua says, Aha, the Lord's going to trouble you today. That's Joshua's response. And they take him into a valley, and, it's, and they stone, they get everything that he has, stone him, and they raise up this big mound of stones over him, and they call it the Valley of Achor, which is the Valley of Trouble, um, throughout the history of the land of Israel. That's Achan. This guy gets the same treatment. For what? For picking up sticks on the wrong day. Now, we're not focusing primarily on the story of uh, the man picking up sticks, because there's actually a really good reason uh, why he is stoned. But... God's response to that is this. So there's this little, about four or five verse section following that. So 36. And all the congregation brought him without the camp, and stoned him with stones, and he died as the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and bid them that they make them fringes in the borders of their garments throughout their generations, and that they put upon the fringe of the borders a ribbon of blue. And it shall be unto you for a fringe that ye may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them, and that ye seek not after your own heart and after your own eyes after which ye used to go whoring, that ye may remember and do all my commandments to be holy unto your God. I am the Lord your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. So, last five verses there, God tells them, I want you to put fringes on the borders of your clothes. I want you to put a ribbon of blue in it. And when you look at it, I want you to remember that you are to be obedient. Because what happened with the man picking up sticks is that we have a guy that wasn't obedient. So, a ribbon of blue, put it on your garments, and then God says, I brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. So this is called a tzitzit. Look familiar? You've seen it in my office? Some of you have. Um, I keep it there for a reason, and We'll get there later. But this is this is what they came up with. So here we are, uh, 3,000 years later, we'll say. It's probably not quite that. But 3,000 years later, and if you see an observant Jewish man, he has these somewhere down here. One man picks up sticks on the wrong day of the week, and every observant Jew for the next 3,000 years does this. Does that sound a little odd to you? You know, Kai and Judson have a fight, and 3,000 later, years later, we'll st we're still doing something in memory of that incident, we could say, because it seems pretty minor. But God said, I want you to put these on the fringes of your garments, and when you look at them, it's going to remind you that you are to obey my commandments. And it says, God actually says specifically here, that you're to remember to obey my commandments instead of going after the inclinations of your own heart and of your own eyes. So there's this contrast here. It's like, you can do what you want, or you can look on this and remember, and you can do my law. Now, why was that so important? I asked you earlier what your purpose is. We'll come back to the tzitzit here in a bit. But what was God's mission for Israel? I'm going to take you back to Exodus 19 for a minute. This is when Israel arrives at Mount Sinai. 
God says this to them. Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. So God tells them, you're going to be a kingdom of priests. What does a priest do in a religion? Spit it out. What's, what do you think? What is the role of a priest in any given religion? Not even necessarily Christianity. What do they do? Perform the ceremonies, the rituals, whatever. Okay. Fair enough. Why not everybody? Why doesn't everybody do that? If you think about religion, you generally have something like this. You generally have something like this going on. So if you if you go to a uh, an Egyptian temple, for example, this is sort of the pattern that you would have. You might have the Nile River. You know, down here, here's the riverbank. And up here is the temple. Now, if you've ever been to Greece, which I have not, but you have the Acropolis. You know what I'm talking about, the iconic place in Athens. Where is it? Geographically, where is that located? You know? Top of the hill. It's at the top of the hill, correct. And so in the Egyptian, uh, in the Egyptian temples, for example, everything was situated so that the closer you got to God, or to the god, whichever god that might be at the moment, obviously well, it might be Amun Ra or something like that. The closer you got to God, the higher up you went in elevation, you walked up, and the uh, the closer, the, the more the more you got into the temple, into the heart of the temple, the the space became more intimate, it was smaller. The idea was that you're down here. That's a really big you. Um, you're down here somewhere, and as you get as you get, as you're moving towards God, it takes going up. So you're kind of leaving all that behind and you're going up. But you and I don't get to come in here into what was the Holy of Holies for the Egyptians, for example. You had the priests. And they were the ones. So if you wanted to make a sacrifice, for example, you had to go to the priest. And the priest mediated the sacrifice between you and God. Or between you and the God. So the idea is that... Uh, you have the priests, let's say, in Judaism, for example, and the entire camp of Israel was set up something like this. You had the tabernacle in the center. Uh, this is where God dwelt. And then as they camped, you had you know, Aaron's sons and all those guys, and you had the Kohathites, and you had the Nerearites, and you had the Levite, the Levitical tribe was all camped around the tabernacle on all four sides. And then beyond that, you had the rest of the camp of Israel out around here like this. So very literally and intentionally what was happening was Israel cannot get too close to the tabernacle. There has to be some kind of a barrier there, and that barrier for them was the priests and the Levites. And if you wanted to connect with God, you don't just march up to the door of the tabernacle with your goat or your lamb and walk in and walk up to the altar and kill it. You had to go to the priest and say, I'd like to make this sacrifice. And the priest, what the priest would do is he would act as a mediator. You can't get to God because there's too much, there's too much sin separating you. There's too much distance separating you. So you need a mediator. What the mediator does is he mediates, literally. He brings together the two things that are separated. In this case, it's God and 
the rest of the kings of Israel. And the entire uh, tribe of the Levites, that was their role. They were there to mediate the relationship between God and the Levites. Everything had to run through them. Now, later on, that actually becomes a problem, uh, especially in the time of, of Christ, because the Levites by that point were actually uh, significantly less godless than, say, the Pharisees, for example. But that's the role of a, of, a, of a priest. That's what a mediator does. So why would God want an entire nation of priests? And he says there in Exodus 19, he says, you will be to me a kingdom of priests. And he calls them a holy and a peculiar people, which means people that are set apart, that are different, that have, that have a different purpose. So why does God want a kingdom of priests? Well, to answer that question, we need to go back to the Garden of Eden. And again, I have the advantage of building on, you know, having had class here for every year and a half. So what I'm talking about tonight relates, I would say, relates all the way back through my Exodus classes and through all of my Genesis classes as well. Getting into some of that here in Genesis 3. Why does God want priests? Or in this case, in the case of the nation of Israel, why would God want a nation of priests? So Genesis 3, this is what happens directly after Adam and Eve take the fruit. Then the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. So, what happened in paradise? What happened at the fall? What do you think of relationships like this? So if I'm up here, can you guys, can you all see? Hope it's not the way. Or if you're from the south, it's the pool pit. That would be pool pit. Ponies. I made the mistake of uh, just jokingly referring to the police as the police when Kai was little, and he actually started calling them that. It's really weird. Police. Thank you. Not Louisiana anymore. All right. So if you think of your relationship with God like this, so this is this is your this is your this is relationships in a general sense. You have you and God in the middle right here, and in Eden, that's exactly how it was. Sorry. You have you and God in the center, and there's nothing between you. That's what Adam and Eve experienced. So when you have a longing for connection with God, they didn't have that longing. They had the connection. And actually, in Revelation, it says, in uh, Revelation 21 and 22, it actually says that they will see his face, which is reestablishing what we lost back at the Garden of Eden. So you have this millennia of separation coming back to, again, being able to look at God in the face. But what you have there is a perfect, vulnerable, open relationship. Nothing hidden, no darkness, no pain, nothing. So what was broken when Adam and Eve sinned? You look at Genesis 3, the first thing they did was they covered themselves. Why? Because it didn't feel so good to be vulnerable anymore. And so now what happens is instead of So now what happens is instead of connecting with God on this level, 
we have a wall and a wall and more walls and more walls. And all of us find ourselves somewhere in one of these layers. There's barriers there in our relationship with God. Now, as time goes on and we grow, we begin to move inward more and more, and those barriers start to get taken down. But this is what we experience. We experience a lack of connection. And it, it's that way. With, we, we, we experience it with each other, and but most importantly, we experience it with God. So that's what we lost at the Garden of Eden. We recognized that we could be hurt. We recognized that there was parts of us that we didn't want God to see. We lost our fear of vulnerability. I'm sorry, we gained a fear of vulnerability. And it says in the passage that God put Adam in the garden to dress it and to keep it. The word there in Hebrew is the word shomer, which means to guard. So God puts Adam in paradise to guard it. And what happens when Adam sins is that Adam stops taking care of what God gave him and begins to take care of himself instead. He begins to guard himself. Light and relationship became something to be feared, and creation was broken. Next question is, what does God do with brokenness? So you have a mess, which is what you have from the middle of Genesis 3 and on. You have a mess. What's God going to do with brokenness? Well, I think I know what we do. I think I know what we like to do with it. I know what I want to do with it. We like to fix it. punish the evildoer, punish people responsible for what they've done, beat out justice, fix everything so that nothing has to be broken anymore. And we do that to a certain extent. The problem is it doesn't work. The question is, what does God do with brokenness? Psalm 23. Psalm 23. Familiar with the song? Okay, Ash, what's the first verse? How does it start? Okay. You pull it out, pass that swig of water. I don't know. Somebody? Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Okay. The Lord is my shepherd. Yeah, you got it. That's good. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. So David's saying, This is who God is. And this is what I get in relationship to that. God is the shepherd. The Lord is the shepherd. I don't want. Now listen to the rest, because you were saying it, but you probably never thought about it. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. How much of that is my doing? None of it, right? Now the, the key phrase in that passage that I want to focus on right now is the word for the phrase, he restores my soul. So this takes us to a Hebrew um, a Hebrew uh, phrase, what did it say? That is that, uh, this is how it's transliterated. Nafshi Yeshobe. That's the, that's the, that's the phrase in question there. He Nafshi Yashobeb, my soul. Now, what does that phrase, Nafshi Yashobeb, mean? Well, it's kind of, it, it has multiple meanings. 
but it essentially runs something along down these, along something like these lines. He restores my soul. That's one way of looking at it. Brings me back is another correct interpretation. Causes me to repent is another way of looking at it. Um, redeems. So, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides the still watchers. He redeems my soul, causes me to repent, brings me back. Something along those lines. So what does God do with brokenness? Well, what does brokenness have to do with Psalm 23? What does, what does it mean when you restore something? So I like old cars. And when a car is restored... What happens is you take something that's dirty and that needs a new paint job and that the seats are torn and you clean the whole thing out, strip it, and make it new again. That's what it means to be restored. To have something restored means that it was broken or defiled or something down along those lines. You don't restore what's new. You restore what's messed up. And so when we think about what God does with brokenness, Correct way of thinking about it is that he redeems it. Now there's another thing happening here in Psalm 23. Daddy has way too much information tonight, way too many places he could go, but I want you to think about something this way. So the, the picture in Hebrew for the word grace, or for their word grace, so there's pictures that go along with, with Hebrew words. The picture for the word grace is if you imagine uh, you're playing Oregon Trail, for example, or you're taking a wagon train out west, and you, at night, what do you do? Well, you circle the wagons, because that's where it's safe. You're within the camp. Grace, in the Hebrew Bible, and in the, the ancient Hebrew language, the picture that's given is, is that you're within the camp. So if you're living in grace, you're within. Now, Psalm 23 also goes to say that he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Their view of salvation meant being on the path of righteousness. Well, why would you need grace? Because you get off the path of righteousness, don't you? And so when, when uh, David says, he restores my soul, what David's meaning is, I get off the path of righteousness. And what my shepherd does is he comes out and he brings me back inside here into the fold. So you think of the, the parable of the shepherd, for example, of the lost sheep. Um, what does God do with brokenness? Number one, he redeems it. How does he redeem it? He goes out and looks for the things that are broken. And he brings them back. That's what God does with brokenness. Luke 15 Jesus goes through a, a very complex and deep parable. We normally know them as three parables. The parable of the lost sheep, of the lost coin, and the lost sons. It's not the prodigal son, it's the prodigal sons. And all three of those stories Jesus is, Jesus is using to illustrate, he's answering the question, why do you eat with publicans and sinners? And Jesus is saying, I eat with them, because that's what the good shepherd does finds what's lost, and he brings it back. So that was Jesus' answer to the Pharisees. And there's, we don't have time to go into that necessarily right now. But, if you look at Luke 15, each one of the things that were lost was unrepentantly brought back. 
There's another interesting thing about lost sheep. They don't come back by themselves. Because a sheep, when it is lost, will eventually tire out and lay down and bleat until they're either found by the shepherd or by a wolf. So the shepherd will go out, seek the lost sheep until he finds it, and then bring it back. So we don't come back on our own. We're carried back by the shepherd. That's what God does with the lost. So back to Numbers 15. Speak unto the children of Israel, and bid, that, bid them that they make, fr make them fringes in the borders of their garments throughout their generations, and that they put upon the fringe of the border a ribbon of blue. So, that's all God says. Make a fringe, put some blue in there, and look on it, and remember to do my commandments. So, this fringe, for example, or this tzitzit, is woven in such a way that there's a certain amount of circles between each knot, or a certain amount of, of weaves between each knot, to remind you of the Ten Commandments and the 613 commandments of the law of Moses. And then there's two strands of blue. Pretty basic, isn't it? So how does this work? Okay, so imagine you have a, uh, which you could maybe say something like this. You do that at the fringes of your garments and you have them here and here, or on all four corners of your shirt. And uh, everywhere you walk, your hands are smacking these things. Why? It's reminding you to do the commandments. Why is it so important that you do the commandments? Well, God said, I want you to put a ribbon of blue in there. Why? Because the priests were blue. And so everywhere you went, you had a constant reminder on your clothing that you and everyone else could look at, reminding you that you're to do the, to do the commandments. But just, it's not just about doing the commandments. It's about being a priest. What does that mean? If you're a kingdom of priests, what is your job? God very specifically spells this out for the children of Israel. That they exist to tell the world who he is. More than that, they exist to show the world who he is. So you think about God taking a broken creation now, and he's going to redeem it. He's going to buy it back. But he doesn't just come in and fix it. He finds a guy named Abraham, and he says, Abraham, I'm going to use your people to start fixing it. What does that tell you about who God's people should be? We should be redemptive. That when we enter a situation, or when something, when we encounter people, we're there to bring them to God. That's, what, that's why we exist. Why, that's why God called Israel. Now you understand maybe why Israel was judged so harshly when they turned away from God. It really wasn't about keeping the law. Yes, it was important. But the law didn't exist for its own sake. The law existed so that they would live a certain way, so that when other people looked at them, they would say, that's what God wants them to look like. It really had nothing to do with do's and don'ts. They as a nation to buy back what was lost in Eden. So what does that look like in real life? Well, they wore the tassels. There's also something else that they wore. This is called a tallit. It's a prayer shawl. This is a messianic prayer shawl, by the way. 
and they would wear it something like this. And wear it pretty much all the time. No, I'm sure Jesus didn't look quite like this. But you could you could bank on it that when you saw the rabbi going around, or when you saw the priests going around, or the Pharisees, or maybe even the patriarch of your family, they were wearing this prayer shawl. Now, strangely enough, when they prayed, they went like this. Something like that, and they actually covered their heads. Don't ask me to explain that. But, uh, yeah, that's how, they would, that's how they would do it. Anyway, so they would wear this prayer shawl, and this was kind of like a symbol of, um, of the family, uh, what's the right word? I don't want to use the word power. But the father would pass it on to his oldest son, who would pass it on to his oldest son. It was kind of like one of the family heirlooms. This was their tallit, their prayer shawl, and they would wear this uh, as part of their religious services and as part of their religious, uh, the outworking of their religion. So, I'm going to go through scripture now. I want to show you where the tzitzit, which is the, uh, the tassels, and the tallit, or the prayer shawl, come up again. Because these... This thing here is used multiple times in scripture. First off, 2 Kings chapter 2. I'll read a story for you here. Injury in verse 8. And Elijah took his mantle, this, and wrapped it together and smote the waters, and they were divided hither and thither, so that they too went over on dry ground. And it came to pass, when they were gone over, that Elijah said unto Elisha, Ask what I shall do for thee before I be taken away from thee. And Elisha said, Let, I pray thee, a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. And he said, Thou hast asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if thou see me when I am taken from thee, it shall be so unto thee. But if not, it shall not be so. And it came to pass, as they went still on, and talked, that, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire, and horses of fire, and parted them both asunder, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel, and the horsemen thereof. And he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes, and rent them in two pieces. He took up also the mantle of Elijah that fell from him, and went back, and stood by the bank of Jordan. And he took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and smote the waters and said, Where is the God of Elijah? And when he had also smitten the waters, they parted hither and thither, and Elisha went over. So, Elijah sees, Elisha sees Elijah taking off his mantle, his tallit, his prayer shawl, the symbol of God's authority, or of God's power in the life of Elijah. And Elijah takes the thing off and smacks the water. The water parts and they go over. And Elisha asks for a double portion of Elijah's spirit. Notice what Elisha picks up that falls from Elijah after he was taken into heaven. So Elisha now takes the mantle and goes back to the River Jordan. You kind of have a respect for this thing, wouldn't you? You don't want to make sure you don't hit your dog or anything like that. See it part hither and thither. And Elijah basically puts Elisha basically puts God to the test and says, "Are you here or aren't you?" And he hits the water. And the waters part, and Elisha goes on, and uh, strangely enough, with the double portion of Elisha's spirit, performs twice as many miracles as Elisha does, which I find somewhat coincidental. <clears throat> but uh, why is God's power on display in this case? Well, you could say, hey, well, the river part, and that's pretty cool. But that's not really the point, is it? 
Why was God's power on display through men like Elijah and through Elisha? It's because that power was to be used redemptively. And Jesus actually points that out in Luke chapter 4, when uh, I believe he was in Nazareth at the time. And he says there were many lepers in the time of Elisha, but the only one that was healed was named the Syrian. Oh, and there were many widows in the time of Elijah during the famine, but Elijah was sent to the widow of Zarephath. Both of those people were Gentiles. And that made the Jews in Nazareth so angry that they took Jesus out to stone him. What were they upset about? Malachi chapter 4, verse 2. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. Are you familiar with that verse? So the word in question here is kanaf. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his kanaf. Kanaf means edge or border or skirt. And what exactly did every Jewish man have on the edge of his garment? It was his tzitzit, or you would say, which this has, I told you, has right here. That takes us to Luke chapter 8. I don't think I'm going to tell you anything. I don't think I'm going to read you any new stories today. I'm going to make some of these connections for you. Luke chapter 8, 43. And a woman, having an issue of blood 12 years, which had spent all her living upon physicians, neither could be healed of any, came behind him and touched the border of his garment, and immediately her issue of blood stanched. And Jesus said, Who touched me? When all denied, Peter and they that were with him said, Master, the multitude throng thee, and press thee, and sayest thou, Who touched me? And Jesus said, Somebody hath touched me, for I perceive that virtue is gone out of me. And when the women saw that she was not hid, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared unto him before all the people for what cause she had touched him, and how she was healed immediately. And he said unto her, Daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace. I want you to think about this story here in Luke chapter 8, because it's recorded in at least three of the Gospels, if I'm not mistaken. If you look at the law of Moses, a woman with an issue of blood, or a man for that matter, was not allowed to enter the tabernacle. They had to live without the camp. They had to live outside of the camp. So for 12 years, this woman had a condition that kept her from making a sacrifice to connect with God. She was defiled by something that she had no control over. And as I was thinking about that, I thought, you know, some of you feel defiled too, don't you? By things that you do have control over. And by things we don't, don't get me wrong. But when we feel defiled, for whatever reason it is, that feels like a wall between us and God, doesn't it? And yet you look at this woman. She had an issue of blood 12 years. She spent everything that she had. This is not someone sitting at home thinking, hey, it'd be kind of nice if this went away. She tried everything that she possibly knew to be able to come back to God. gave her the idea 
that if she touched the tassels at the end of Jesus' robe, she could be healed? Maybe just somewhere she read Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, that says, Unto you that fear not, fear my name, shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. And there's something really powerful about this story. Because I can tell you that you should live redemptively. That doesn't mean you can. And I would I want you to think about this. Our ability, our ability to live redemptively, and by that I mean relationally, I think is probably directly connected to how much redemption we experience in our connection with God. It's difficult to give what you don't have. Matthew 21. Another story for you. <clears throat> Matthew 21, 12. And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. So, you know, that's another story that's all throughout the Gospels. And we're like, what does that have to do with the tzitzit? Well, if you look in the book of John, it says that Jesus made a scourge of small cords. Now, where would Jesus get small cords? I think, and some scholarship would back me up on this, or, or maybe would preceded me to this, that Jesus walks into the court of the Gentiles, which is where they were having this livestock auction. And he sees what's going on, and he takes off his prayer shawl, his tallit, and he starts whacking people with it. Get out of here! And he's, you know, shooing the animals out of things like that. He's not going to hurt anybody with this. It's symbolic. Why is that so important? Well, Jesus goes on to quote two scriptures to them, one from Isaiah and one from Jeremiah. The one from Isaiah 56 is taken uh, from a passage where um, it's talking about at the end of time, or in the future days, from the days of Isaiah, God is going to bring the Gentiles in, and they're going to worship him. And it says, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. And Jesus said, Get out of here! He's using the tzitzit. Get out of here! Why? Because this place, this spot right here in the court of the Gentiles is the place to be called a house of prayer. But Jesus leaves out for all nations on purpose. By leaving it out, he emphasizes it. Because they knew the scriptures and they knew the book of Isaiah. And Jesus is saying, what are you guys doing? You see these tt right here? These were to remind us that we're to be redemptive. Well, it's a little hard for the Gentiles to worship when you're using their spot as a livestock auction. And then Jesus goes on to quote from Jeremiah, where uh, Jeremiah is talking about something, and it's on the back of my page here. Actually, it's on the back of my page. I don't know where it is. Not where it is. Where Jeremiah is talking about, uh, he's calling Israel to repentance and refocus on their mission. Literally. He's calling them to refocus on their mission, and he asks the question, is this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes. So Jesus is linking two scriptures 
from the Old Testament. He's saying, what are you guys doing? My house is to be a house of prayer, and you've turned it into a den of thieves. And later on in Matthew 21, Jesus is going to give them a parable about the vineyard being taken away from the people who don't yield up the fruits of it. And Jesus tells the leaders of the temple, this is going to happen to you. And it does. And 40 years later, the temple was destroyed, and Judaism, as we know it, has not existed since. Two verses in the tzitzit that Jesus used, calling out where they were failing to live redemptively. You know what the Pharisees, you know what Judaism was doing at the time? They had stopped being redemptive and started protecting their own culture, which is exactly what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. They carried it right on through. The law was to be the means to the end, not the end of itself. One more example, and then I'll be done. In Mark 14. And being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment, a spike nard, very precious, and she broke the box and poured it on his head. And there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, Why was this waste of ointment made? For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence and had been given to the poor. And they murmured against her. And Jesus said, Let her alone. Why trouble you here? She hath wrought a good work on me. For ye have the poor with you always, and whatsoever ye will, ye may do them good. But me ye have not always. She hath done what she could. She has come aforehand to anoint my body to the burial. What's going on here? Now, I think in another place it calls this woman a harlot. And the Simon thinks within himself, if Jesus would know who this was, he wouldn't be allowing her to do this. So think of it this way. Jesus, this is crucifixion week, by the way. Jesus is sitting there in the house. And he's got his prayer shawl around him, and he's having his meal, and a sinful woman walks in. What's more important, keeping yourself pure or being redemptive? And as he's sitting there at the meal, this woman comes up to him and begins pouring this ointment that was worth, who knows, $40,000 in today's money something like that, on his feet. The people around were upset. Just like the people around the woman with the issue of blood were probably upset because everyone she touched that day was considered unclean. I said, what are you doing? That's a waste. And I want you to think about Jesus' response. He's sitting there, his seat, his righteous holy life is being defiled by this woman. That's how they saw it. But that's not what was happening, was it? Now, in another passage, it says that she washed his feet and wiped them with her hair. The place that he had poured, the, the very place that she had poured the ointment. You know what's interesting is that woman left from the house that day and she smelled like Jesus. He had the perfume so did she. And Jesus doesn't list all of the other things that she could have worked on while she was in his presence. He doesn't say, yeah, well, she, she got that taken care of, but, you know, tomorrow there'll be more. He said, 
she's done what she could, implying that what she's done enough for today. And that connection was enough that when she walked away, everyone knew exactly where she'd been because she smelled like him. See, when you come to Jesus with your sin, it's not him that walks away defiled, it's you that walks away clean. And so often we think that I need to get my sin taken care of before I can come talk to him. Now, I recognize that sometimes there are things that need to be confessed before we can feel free and clear before God. I'm not, I'm not saying it in that sense. But, even in the camp of Israel, God had a barrier around them because you can't dwell in God's righteousness because of sin. And then God said, this is what I want you to do with your sin. You bring it to me every day. You bring it to me. And that's how God redeems. So the tzitzit, I keep them around. I have one on my desk to remind me to be redemptive. That when you come sit in my office and talk, sometimes I'll pull it out and play with it. It's nice to have something to play with, for one. Um, it's like a little barista. But um, the, really re the reason I do it is because I recognize that I am here to bring you to Christ. And that's what I'm going to try to do. To live redemptively. Now, I also have one hanging from the, the mirror in my car to try to help me to drive redemptively. And that one's a little harder to remember sometimes. My wife helps me with that. <clears throat> but um, I have a bunch of these in my office. And if you want one sometime while I'm in there, come in and I'll give you one. And it can remind you that every time that somebody walks away from the counter with you, they should smell a little bit more like Jesus. Thanks for your attention. Um, if I can keep with...